Good morning, everybody. I am Sir Buckley, and you have returned to the Isle of Faces for Scraps and Scrolls and Valor Arenas Clash of Kings Part 5. Yes, we're nearly halfway through. Hello, I am, as I say, Sir Buckley, and I'm talking to you from little windy, little cold, but still lovely England. And as you can hear, my voice still has not returned to its usual strength and uh, and quality and still very bunged up still of a scratchy throat but i've just had a lozenge so hopefully it won't be too bad and not quite as painful for you to listen to as last week so today we're back to six chapters but it might actually end up being a longer episode because it's uh, some really really good chapters some of my favorite chapters in this book and some important chapters as they all are before we get going with the the six today we're back to six just a thank you as always to everybody first of all for listening it's still um pretty amazing to me whenever i happen to look at the little download counter and see the numbers of people who want to listen to me for some reason talk about a song of ice and fire and uh, i must thank obviously aziz and ashaya for that and valor aridas all those good stuff they're doing there but thank you to all of you as well and to our patrons is forever appreciated deep within my heart the support uh, you offer so yes get in touch please we had a you might have seen my tweet we had a, a lovely review this past weekend i think it was on uh, apple podcasts not only five star rating very nice but also a lovely review in which this person referred to me as the excessively humble host and if that didn't make me laugh and uh, <laughs> it's not one of the favorite most favorite things i've heard about myself, uh, I don't know what is. If you think I've been humble so far, you've got no idea how humble I can be. I can be more humble than anyone. Just watch. So yes, please do get in touch. Love to hear literally about anything. We really do appreciate when we hear from any of you about any subject. Our faces, whatever. Just say hello. We don't mind. We're pretty nerdy. We'll talk to you about most things. Anyway, let's get on with today our six chapters. So let's go through them first. We have... Catelyn 2, the one where we get to go to the Reach and see King Renly now. We have John 2, where we get to meet Craster. We have Theon 2, where we get to meet Esgred. We have Tyrion 6, where Tyrion gets to sit the Iron Throne after some shenanigans with his sister. We have Aya 6, where we get to meet the Tickler and Wheeze and those kind of people. That's not quite as fun. And we have Daenerys 2, where we get to meet Calf. So lots of meeting there, lots of uh, new places, new people. Let's get right into it with Catelyn 2. Down in the Reach, down with Renly, down with the little Melee and uh, Renly's really large army and is kind of messing around and not doing anything with it. So the first thing that jumped out to me from this chapter is Renly asking Catelyn if uh, Sir Barristan, or as I like to call him, Sir Barry, had uh, gone to Rob and him saying that he had actually expected Barry to come down and join Renly. Now, this says something about Renly here, and I think it's kind of ridiculous he would expect Barry to come his way. If anything, people should have thought that Barristan would go to Stannis if he's going anywhere, because, you know, he's the honourable guy, and Stannis does have the right claim. Whether Renly thinks that's a good claim or whatever else, he does have the most legitimate claim, and he should be aware enough to see that and see that Barry would be going to Stannis rather than a second son, or well, a third son in Renly's case. And considering they spent years on the same small council, we were even introduced to them to, to them as a pair in Game of Thrones in Sansa's uh, first chapter. You would think Renly would know enough about Barry to realise this, but apparently not. Now, speaking of Renly himself, 
his charisma, his uh, his charm, it does kind of pay off with Catelyn. She starts thinking of him internally as King Renly. So I wonder, she could just be sarcastic in her own head and it doesn't quite come off. Or it could be that Renly is actually quite effective at getting across that he's kingly because he looks kind of kingly. Who knows? And like I said, this is our first steps into the Reach and we're not really going to return all that much. Certainly not for a long time. And certainly not this end of it. We do eventually get round to Old Town with Sam and, I mean, I guess Victorian visits the Shield Islands very briefly with uh, Euron and that crowd, but we don't, considering it's like the largest of the Southern Kingdoms, we don't really come here much, which is a shame because I like the Reach. It reminds me of home. There's a quote early on in this chapter from Catelyn. It says, the face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. And that's when she's looking at her reflection and... Uh, well, not quite yet, Catelyn, but yes, soon you're going to look exactly like that. Just to bring us down a bit. So obviously we know why Catelyn's here. It's to try and make an ally out of Renly. And we've got more of this early theme of, of Rob being the one king who's trying to make a lot of connections and actually forge some alliances rather than just go out on his own. And he, yeah, he's the only one doing this. Tywin and Tyrion, they're going to get involved soon enough. Tyrion's going to start messaging Dawn and eventually Tywin will be doing this will be forging alliances with these same people soon enough later in the book but not yet at the moment it's just rob he sent fion out to the iron islands he sent catelyn down to the reach he keeps messaging lysa even though he's never going to get a reply but he is also still shrewd enough to know his sending of uh cleos is probably not going to result with any anything positive from the lannisters and he needs to march again and obviously we don't get to see that on page, unfortunately, but that's what he's up to, so that's quite interesting. Renly's been done pretty well. He's obviously got his a large army, powerful friends, and it's quite difficult, historically speaking, to get Highgarden involved in any civil war. They normally just kind of sit out, or at least wait and take the safe road. They've really committed hard to Renly here in kind of rebelling against Stannis and Joffrey and going for King's Landing. So well done, Renly. I do wonder if he's... If it's crossed his mind that if, say, he's successful, takes King's Landing, he would be actually in a quite similar situation to Robert and Cersei slash the Lannisters if he had won the throne, in that he would be very, very indebted to the Tyrells and obviously he would be married to Marjorie. So he'd be him in King's Landing, some Stormlanders, I'm sure, but for the most part, Reachmen, a small council of Reachmen, I'm sure. Mace would be there, Loras would be there, I'm assuming. And they would kind of run the show, even if they're not quite as evil as the Lannisters. I wonder how much thought Renly had actually given to the Stark cause, because I would bet he expected them to eventually lose. I think that's clear. He thinks, okay, they're going to do well, but Tywin will knock them out eventually, and it doesn't matter to me because I'll be in King's Landing by then anyway. But he did need them to keep Tywin busy. So did he actually intend to do anything that would help that? We can't say, but... Probably not. It is a shame that Renly's offer never gets a chance to be explored more. This offer that he makes to Catelyn of letting Rob be king, technically, by name, but still swearing fealty to Renly. It's, a, it's an odd little offer. It's very um, specific in its wording and quite quite weird. I don't think that included the Riverlands in the bargain. I think he said, okay, you can go back above the neck and call yourself king, not king of um, river and north riverlands and north if it did it might have actually been rob's best chance to get to go home with everything that he's promised everyone if he says okay you take the crown lands and everything else 
let me keep the Riverlands and the North. I'll call myself King of the North and the Riverlands. And that's technically what he has offered everyone, even though, again, when you actually look into it, how the taxes work, does it, if there's a war on, do they still have to serve the Iron Throne? It's not not as sweet an offer as Rennie's making out here, but would have been would have kind of satisfied Rob's you know checklist, even if it would have been incredibly annoying for the the Rickard Carstarks of the world. Yeah, I I think it would have just been very confusing. Rob being a king, is it really just a new dawn where they get to be called princes? Is Rob allowed to be called king? But everyone's like, yeah, but you're not a king. Who can say where, whether that would have worked or not? The other big introduction, the other big meeting we have today is Brienne of Tarth. Yes, she it pops up for the first time. Lucky yes. But not a happy time for Brienne. We don't know it now. We actually see her have a, her biggest success here. But we find out later in A Feast of Crows, Brienne has been treated pretty damn terribly in this company that she currently keeps. So I guess winning this melee must have made her feel incredibly smug and well-deserved Brienne well done. I do wonder later on if Brienne had not witnessed Renly's murder. I guess I'm jumping uh, jumping quite far ahead here. But if she hadn't witnessed Renly's murder, would she have gone over to Stannis as a Stormlander uh, or maybe wanting to serve Renly's blood? Or would she have even blamed Catelyn if, say, Catelyn had been in a tent, Brienne hadn't? She hears the same rumours that... Catelyn killed Renly in some way. Does she blame Catelyn to take up arms against the Starks? Who's to say? I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm jumping her forward here. I've got another quote from Catelyn. It's uh, another dark one. Shame is the last one. Winter comes for all of us, Catelyn thought. And to me, this is a, a true kick in the nads and probably the saddest take on the Stark words in the whole series. It's not just winter is coming. It's winter comes for all of us because... What makes it saddest is Kat thinks her winter has already arrived with Ned's death and she doesn't actually know it's going to get so much worse or at least she thinks it is uh, with Bran and Rick on and then obviously what happens to her and Rob she's living in her winter and I don't think she even quite realises this yet. It does make me think that perhaps winter is coming as words was actually at some point also kind of intended as a message to enjoy and value what one has in life and in summer before winter arrives. I, I'd never thought of that take before, but maybe. Okay, last note for Catelyn too is, um, he. so really he's aligned with House Oakart, so I'm wondering if he had hoped Ares Oakart would maybe become a mole for him or, or help him in taking King's Landing. He, who's to say there? We don't, we've got no idea what kind of relationship Ares Oakart has with his family, if they're in communication, but there's a link there. And Renly definitely, if he's smart, and that, that is a question. If he's smart, would be trying to expose any link he can. Okay, let's move on to John 3. I think I said it was John 2 in the in the intro there. But no, it's John 3. We get to meet Craster up in the wall. More meetings for us. We also meet the lovely Gilly, but it's not much fun of anything because, hey, it seems that this is a pretty terrible guy giving these poor women and daughters and wives a pretty terrible life. And uh, John comes face to face with that and has to deal with the morality and the questions of, of letting that be. So I think this is where Gior's mission really begins to switch because he gets, Crest is talking about Mance and kind of giving Gior just something to think about, just any kind of answer. And Gior, being as he is, is like, okay, I can either go on just wondering about the undead and the the others which I don't want to think about, or 
there's mants. I know mants. I know wildlings. I could just think about that instead. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about that instead because I don't want to think about the other thing. So this is really where that whole mission of finding Benjen and um, think, finding out what's happened to the wildlings falls out of Dion Mormont's head. And now we're just back to the status quo of there's wildlings around. Let's fight them. And I have to ask again, why not retreat to the wall here? Considering they later push back Mance with the few survivors they do end up with, if they took back these 200 men and gave back the 100 that are coming with um, with Corrin Halfhand, if they all went back to the wall, not only do you take them, you take your best commanders, your most tested commanders, you retain your kind of shape and structure that's so far gone by the by the end of Storm of Swords, and you know, you're, you're sitting pretty. What tactic is there really behind a field battle to Mance? Okay, you can... Uh, you know they're very confident that it's just a bunch of wildlings and 300 of them on a good uh, geographic spot like the fist of the first men could destroy mance and just keep him out basically but you can do that anyway at the wall and you can just do it a lot easier with a lot less risk to your own life even a you know the most organized 300 men the most well-equipped 300 men against the laziest uh, just carrying sticks and stones, bunch of wildlings, if there's like 10,000 of them or however many there are, you're going to suffer. So why risk it? Just go back to your wall and wait for them to come and smash them all. That's the whole point of the wall. I'm going to get more and more annoyed about Geo Mormon in this chapter, so do bear with me. You might, If you're a Geo Mormon fan, you might want to skip this bit because I'm not very happy with him. To be fair... For Forgio, I will say this: there's, uh, they, they see a, ro a rotting bear skull when they approach Craster's Keep. So I guess that's some foreshadowing that it's not it's not going to end well for Gio. Probably not the only foreshadowing we get in this chapter. Craster himself, uh, he's it's not a great tone setting for the wildlings. He's the, he's the first wildling we meet above the wall. Obviously, we've met Osher and Stiv and the others below, but this is the first true wildling in his true habitat. And it's kind of a worst-case scenario, the worst-case wildling. He's got the freedom that all wildlings wish and that tempts John so much and really speaks to him. But he has the freedom to do these horrible things to these women and these wives and daughters and also to these poor sons that are born. And, I mean, that is really one of the bigger mysteries that we just have zero answer for. We, we are kind of heavily show-influenced here of what we think happens and all that but from the books we've got nothing to be honest with you we really don't it's a mystery all the way back to clash of kings so what was that 98 and we've not really got any answer for what the others do with these sacrificed children or you know if this this is the only person doing this or what we just don't know so yeah craster worst case scenario and it's it's odd George goes out of his way to detail a lack of defences, and I think that really sets the tone for this chapter. It makes everything more ominous. If you were coming into you know, a keep, fortified keep stone and, and battlements and everything else, you'd kid it. But it's not. It's just this kind of open house, yet he's able to survive, apparently, uh, from wildlings and the others, and that just makes it more creepy. So I think that's a good tactic from George there. Now, as he's got to... Uh, I was very happy he was able to get to my my disappointment in Gior and his, his his telling John that the the, the girls could help themselves because it boiled me up and I did, I did write probably too much in the notes so as he's got to most of it I was glad he was able to put that in the in the um on uh, Sunday I was very happy about that but 
<laughs> I add even more. It pauses easy. Couldn't get to all of it. You know, there's other things to fit in, but it's just the biggest confirmation to me that Gio has completely lost semblance of what his role in the world is. The protecting the realms of men argument that John's going to base much of his own rule on in the Dance of Dragons that can be traced back here. He sees these poor women and thinks that they should be protected, but the Night's Watch fails to do that. So John's really forging his opinions and policies here and he's going he's to strive to change things Geo does not strive to change things because he's so resistant to going away from that status quo like we said at the beginning he just he just wants to sit and fight wildlings man come on it's not difficult we sit on the wall the wildlings come we beat them back I don't want to deal with others and questions about you know what Craster should be allowed to do just let's just keep it black and white he doesn't want to get up and I've, I've actually written I get so boiled up about it that I now actually think it's fitting that Gio Mormont meets his end here. I think he should meet his end here because this is his greatest failing. I think this is where he should rest and this is why there's a, a rotting bear skull here. The continued knowledge of Craster and what he does to his what he does at his keep to both his daughters and his boys is Gio's biggest failing. So I just think that it's right that he pays for it at the same place and that him and Craster go down together. Yeah, that's right, I said it. And for all Gio's remarks about needing Craster to help the Night's Watch survive, he really has to be thinking that operations above the wall, they have to change in the immediate future, no matter the cause. There's only so much point in having ranging at the moment anyway, when all the wildlings have scarpered. And if you think Mance is coming south with 10,000, you're probably not, wanna, you're probably not going to want to send parties too far from the wall anyway. You want to just be sending scouts out. So again, I would say, why him? Execute Craster. Leave 10 or 20 miles. If you're, if you're absolutely resolute on you're going to keep going, even though, I, again, I think they should be turning around right now. But let's say you're going to keep going to the Fist of the First Men or whatever to really find out, just to confirm that Mance is coming, maybe. Okay, fine, I understand that. So if you're going to do that, I say execute Craster right now, right here. Leave 20, 10, 20 men behind to hold the land and the food, and the wives until the return journey. Leave one of your most trusted commanders so we don't have any of the stuff that we get in Storm when winter gets real bad. And then on the return journey, you can pick them up. And to be fair, I guess if we if they did do that, then those 10 or 20 men, if they're not doing the old sacrificing, maybe the others come a-knocking, uh, so they could die that way. But I doubt Geo's sinking that far ahead. And then they can get back behind the wall with the women and think up some new scheme for above-the-wall operations after Mance is dealt with, you know, set up a little outpost or Crassus Keep was, put 50 men there, or well, I don't know, something like that. You don't have to rely on Crassus. I refuse to believe that the entire structure of the Night's Watch that's lasted for 8,000 years and spans like 700 miles east and west relies solely on this old, horrible man and his keep. I, don't, I just think that's too easy for Gior to, a crutch for him to lean on. Just get rid of it. You really don't need ranging at this time, considering what's happened to your last two rangers as well, with like Waymar and Benjen. It's obviously not going well. So just get back, think of a new plan, and just get rid of Craster. <sighs> I think this is where John he feels the shame of the Night's Watch for the first time, and that's going to come back into play later this book. It's definitely in the next book where after he meets Egret and starts hanging around with the Wildlings. Yeah, it's coming back. Okay, I promise I won't rant about Gior anymore. I'll probably, you know, no more, no more than four or five more times through this chat, uh, through this episode today. 
But we're moving on to Fionn 2. One of the most famous chapters in all of Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, for good reason. This is where Fionn meets his new ship. He meets Esgred, and uh, once they ride up to Pike, after some fondling, uh, he finds out that Esgred is Asher. And I think, as he said this bit, this is, I am convinced, the best chapter in the whole series for reread purposes. Because once, once you know the twist and you start seeing the clues and you start realising like what why Wex looks that way and why the people are saying hello to Esgred, etc, etc. There's so many good little uh, tidbits in here. It's really, really good writing. It is a favourite. And actually, I think it's a very similar setup to Fionn's first chapter. If you remember, he was on the the, the, the ship, I think it's called the Miraham, and he's having some... What he thinks is a lovely time is actually a horrible time with the captain's daughter. So he has an interaction with a woman first before moving on to the politics of Pike. And that's pretty much what happens here too. He has this interaction with Esgred. They ride back up to Pike like Fionn did with his uncle last chapter. And there's not much happiness about the politics. In that And in that first chapter, Fionn had a full illusion of uh, importance, competence and being worth pretty much anything whatsoever to House Greyjoy. And somehow he, he's kept that until this chapter despite the obvious um, contraries from his father. He still goes into this chapter that he can he can be someone in this in this world of Pike and Ironborn. But eventually that all gets stripped away from him in the most humiliating of ways, which again is, is very enjoyable for us. And Aziz, he went through a lot of the the actual interactions between Asher and Fionn. I mean, it's been done many times before because it's such a good chapter, so I won't repeat those here, but uh, suffice to say that Asha, she she just blows him out of the water, really runs rings around him. She turns his usual uh, sexual interactions on their head, and he, like, he just can't keep up. He's obviously out of his depth. And not only is she doing that, just in terms of the flirting, but she's using it to learn information. She learns anything she wants to about Rob's wars, Theon's own personality and his intentions. It's a really, it's, an e it's a sweep. It's a straight-up playoff sweep in the, in the Game of Thrones. And Fionn, he just doesn't realise. If we didn't have enough clues about how Fionn... He just doesn't match this world. He doesn't get it. And they really come full full circle here, full full alarm bells. He doesn't realise how big of a deal it's going to be that he's barely sailed in the last 10 years and he's never captained. If he doesn't know that's a big deal for the Ironborn, that's pretty telling about you know where, where he stands in terms of his, his home. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I won't go into all the, the ride-up to Pikey, as brilliant as it is. Although I do think it is, I will just quickly say, it's very clever of Asha um, to include brothers talk. She says, oh, what about your brothers? And she's referring to Maron and Roderick. And obviously, she knows that they are dead. But by including them, she just completely throws Fionn off the scent. And uh, it just it just works brilliantly. And also, she does find out what Fionn's plan for her would be when she's asking about Fionn's sister and he's saying, well, I'll just marry her off. And obviously she just, she's probably laughing internally and saying, yeah, we'll see about that in 10 minutes, bucko. But actually that is what ends up happening with Euron. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Now I do want to talk about Balon. Balon's bonkers plan because we get the full uh, reveal of that in this chapter once they get up to Pike and after Fionn's been further humiliated by his sister in the... Um, in the hall and that with the axe throwing. We've actually got to give Fionn some credit here and remember that attacking Winterfell is his idea. Balon didn't even get that far. He was just attacking the north. 
and I think I think it was last week or Fionn's last chapter certainly said that Balon is kind of like the Joker from The Dark Knight, where he's just he's just chasing a car and he doesn't know what to do with it. That is the North. He's got no idea, and we really get that confirmed here. Balon's whole plan. Let's go through it in detail. His whole plan, as far as we know, anyway. He might have been holding something back. I bloody hope he was, because this plan sucks. He thought about attacking two sites, Deepwood Mott and Moat Kalen, and then Theon was going to be just an annoyance at the shore. And maybe Bayon was holding back some plan for attack on Winterfell, but what that would have been, I struggle to imagine. I guess he could have told Victarion to march up from Moat Kalen once that's taken... Okay, possible. He would have had to leave some of his force to still garrison Moat Kaelin, or what's the point in taking it anyway? And then they would have had to march up the King's Road. I'm guessing at the same time that Asher would emerge from the Kingswood. Maybe that at uh, the Kingswood, the Wolfswood. Maybe that's the plan here, kind of pincer movement. Okay. And at least Asher would have some cover then coming out of the Wolfswood, but then then what? And that's that's assuming that Victorian gets up the King's Road. Because we've got to remember, we know there's all this stuff going on with the Hornwoods and that uh, like Roderick Cassell's going to be busy and they're all going to be, the Mandley's going to be busy with that. The Boltons and the Umbers are going to kind of be blocked by that. Balon doesn't know that. As far as he knows, there's all those people in that last brand chapter, the Moore's Umber, William Mandley and the Bol- the Bastard of Bolton, etc, etc. They're all there and they can all very, very easily get to the King's Road and intercept Victarion and his Ironborn who have no business in like a field battle. They'd have no cavalry, I'm assuming, and in a completely foreign land, wouldn't be good of it. They've already probably been bled by the Cranagman. Okay, right, so that doesn't seem like a good idea. But let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say the element of surprise somehow lets Victorian get up the King's Road and somehow Asher comes through the Wolfswood and they arrive at Winterfell. So then what? Because again, in theory... Roderick wouldn't have gone with any of the men. They'd still have plenty there to garrison Winterfell. So what, they besiege Winterfell? Is there any record of the Ironborn being experienced siegecrafters? Because I don't remember any. And then as soon as they did that, they would just be surrounded by Hornwoods and Umbers and Sirwins and everyone else. It's just a completely manic plan. And that's actually assuming that Balor never thought that far ahead. For As far as we know, he just deploys two Greyjoy forces at opposite ends of the north nearly, and they just get to sit there and call it conquest. It takes Deepwood Mott, Moat Kaelin, and okay, we've conquered the North. Apparently, it's only Fionn acting on his own, his own noggin, that makes any strike into the heart of the North. And it overall, it just makes serious sense anyway. If the end goal is independence, you're not getting that by beating the North. Robert doesn't hold the Iron Throne. You've still got Joffrey and Stannis and Renly. Everyone else, you're not independent from the seven kingdoms all of a sudden let's just let's say that Balon did take the north and rob got obliterated that's not independence the iron throne would still be like yeah we want our north back and we'll just come and take it from you because there's no way you're holding it and i wonder also why did Balon not study his history books in the olden days the the harwin harwin whore i, I assume that's how you say that name when they invaded the riverlands and um his whole generation they took their longships up the rivers into the heart of the kingdom. Why wasn't Fionn or some of Victorian's force sent up these western rivers? If you ever look at the map, there's some western rivers that go into the rills and the barrenlands. They could have really got in there, but eh, apparently not. 
To sum up, Balon, who removes all doubt that he is a complete and utter moron in this chapter, his plan has no goal, no ends, no end goal, no strategy, and it really amounts to little more than a toddler throwing his toys around just to make some noise. And it, it's kind of the same thing as Gio in a little way. Balon is old, and he just wants to do something. That's it, just something, anything. It really, it's nothing. He achieves nothing, but it sounds like something, so he's going to do it, because that's all he's got. So that's it for that's it for Balon. Let's return to Asher briefly because the humiliation handed to Fion by Asher has big implications for Winterfell later on. Let's say that they had a different meeting and these two siblings were on more of an even setting. Then later on, Fion might have been able to think more rationally about the eventual outcome of him taking Winterfell, and he might have been satisfied with just sacking it and then leaving it, like Asher suggests later on and like she advises. But then again, maybe if he wasn't so desperate to outshine Asher and get his revenge, or what he calls revenge on her, maybe he wouldn't have actually dared so hard in the first place or taken Winterfell, Winterfell at all. So who can say? Final note for this chapter, and I, I do encourage you just to go back and read it. It is so funny, and I, I've really not touched on the actual interactions between the two on their little ride-up, or at um, Pike as well, because there's just a whole other set of humiliation once they actually get to the dining hall. Um, but last note is we have Wex in this chapter. I'm pretty sure this is the first one he's in. And he's a silent squire. And it's just kind of comparable because we also have Podrick in this book. And he's got a very heavy stutter in this uh, in this chapter. So just a little bit of comparison there. Okay, halfway through, let's move on to Tyrion 6. So this is the one where not only do we see Cersei and Lance all kind of together. Not We don't quite catch them, but, you know, we know what's going on. And Tyrion and, C- and Cersei actually sh- actually share one of their nicer moments after the news that Stannis and Renly are fighting each other. Uh, and we also have Alice Fawn making a return in this chapter, and then Grand Maester Pycelle being taken into custody after the in the aftermath of Theon's uh, little game of three from last week. So let's start with Lancel because it's obvious that he's playing a larger role now in the games between Cersei and Tyrion. And he actually, he kind of reminds me of Tommen in a way, because he's, Lancel's getting used without really realising it, and because as long as he keeps up his benefits of Cersei and being a knight and everything else, if they just keep him happy, he's not going to question it. He's 16 or something like that. You're really not going to turn around and be like, hang on, why is it I'm allowed to be a knight and get to have sex with this person? You're not going to stop. Not at 16. You're just going to think, hey, this is cool. Oh, yeah, I'll keep doing this. And, yeah, that's just how Tommen is, really. As long as he gets his... uh, He's allowed to play with his cats. He doesn't have to eat beets. Tommen's happy. He'll sign whatever. And that's kind of how I see Lancel here. So when Tyrion comes in, he starts talking about uh, what's going on. Cersei assumes it's about that she's imprisoned some begging brothers who've been saying vile things in the streets and uh, that Tyrion's annoyed about it. That's not what Tyrion's there for, although he does he is quite annoyed. But it's firstly these begging brothers, they're an escalation of the, the rising religion that we discussed last week. Last time Tyrion's chapters we had a the like prophet man, the speaker in the streets kind of decrying the Lannisters and Tyrion specifically. So it's the next step up. Now we've got begging brothers uh, saying stuff about Jamie and Cersei and the, yeah the the presence of religion is, is really swelling and we know how it's going to end up again in feast with the high sparrow and the faith militant etc but we can see the seeds of that here in in these chapters and obviously this doesn't help this imprisonment 
not going to help Cersei later on when she comes up against the Faith. Um, and about those about those begging brothers, Lancel says, I would have had their tongues out. And Cersei said the same thing just a few chapters ago. So her influence on Lancel is, is really very obvious. He's really just kind of becoming a mouthpiece already. But then Lancel gets kicked out and uh, they actually get down to business about Stannis and Renly. And it's a really unique moment between Tyrion and Cersei. And this one tiny window in what could have been in a, in a very different world where they're, they're actually happy together and they share some of that happiness. How many times do we think this has happened in their life where Cersei's picked him up and swung him around and they've laughed together? I don't think you're going to need your full hand, are you, to, to count the amount of times that's happened in their whole lives. But even then, even in this happy moment, there's ulterior motives. Tyrion's trying to turn to lull Cersei into a false sense of security so that he can play his little trick in a minute of um, getting her out of court and also removing her bodyguards. And who knows, Cersei's probably plotting something with her own smiles. Just a, a, a guess. There's this it's kind of a classic sibling prank blown large when the two siblings are actually ruling the city and the realm when with this uh, this light poisoning that Tyrion enacts. Would not have actually been surprised for the outcome to be much darker considering how poison is used elsewhere in the series. And we've already seen it in this book. We've already had a poisoning in this book. So we're back to that straight away again. Just off the top of my head, we have a poisoning in every book, don't we? If John goes down in Game of Thrones, if you want to count that as Game of Thrones, very light to put... We have Crescent's poisoning in this one. We have Joffrey in Storm. We have Pate. Is that poison? Does that count as poison? In Feast of Crows. So one in Dance. And the Locusts, I guess, isn't there? Uh, I wonder what winds will bring in times of poison. Anyway, I am digressing again. So we also have uh, in this in this book, in this chapter rather, Tyrion's reply to Rob, his reply to the peace terms. And again, we know these are opening gambits, so it's obvious Tyrion's not expecting these terms to work, and uh, in, in the same way that Rob's obviously weren't. But having said that, Tyrion does sneak some kind of genuine concessions in there with uh, ice. The stuff with ice, it really reveals Tyrion's guilt over the treatment of Ned and Sansa, and it's the same kind of thing he'll feel after the Red Wedding, that he's not actually comfortable with how Tywin and the others are dealing with the Stark threat. Having said that, he does also sneak in this kind of breakout attempt, which is kind of also a mark against ancient customs. Um, perhaps a false peace banner, not quite so bad as the desecration of guest right that the Red Wedding is, but it is another string to tie between Tyrion and Tywin, even if it's not nearly so nasty. So we also have Littlefinger's reaction to being tricked and he, he throws a paddy. Tyrion played him, basically, in his last chapter of, of the free trick. And it's, it's just another point for my continued rambling about him forever playing the teenager. He, he's really pissed about this, about being tricked by Tyrion. I think his ego's a bit bruised and he does not hide it well. He even further risks pissing Tyrion off because he comes down quite quite straight-laced. He's, uh, he's not playing the game here. He's just annoyed at Tyrion and he lets him know about it. I suppose this annoyance is the only real justice we'll get about the dagger in Tyrion, however small that is. It keeps making me realise that Littlefinger is just more lucky than we've actually given him credit for. The dominoes really do just fall in his favour. The Varys reaction, on the other hand, is much more credible. He could be lying, he could be genuine, he could be plotting revenge against Tyrion, he could just be admiring Tyrion's technique and being like, hey, game recognised game, that's pretty good. The point is that he's not blatantly emotionally reacting as Peter is 
So Pycel, he gets arrested, he gets thrown in the cells in this chapter. But that arrest reiterates the problem we found in Game of Thrones of Pycelle and Cersei never actually communicating it being on the same side. It's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like, I wonder what they could have actually done if they just spoke to each other once or twice. And I know we said this back in the Game of Thrones uh, reread as well. We learned about that confusion over John Aaron's murder where Pycelle think he's, thinks he's doing something for Cersei. Cersei doesn't have any clue what's going on, shockingly. And um, seemingly they've not improved since and they've both look all the more foolish for it now. And I think it kind of sets up how Pycelle goes against Cersei once Tywin dies. If they had actually forged their own relationship now, maybe he doesn't do that later on. But um, he does. Anyway, last point for this chapter is Alice of Fawn turning up. And Tyrion, he just kind of point-blank refuses Alice based on their personal history. Now, we can't blame Tyrion because Alice of Fawn is an ass. So I would refuse him too. But it's a, it's a great microcosm of the series that the larger problem of the others and Northern Threat is just ignored because of stupid quibbles and personal relationships and politics. And I think the excitement of King's Landing and the feeling of Tyrion, he's sat on the Iron Throne now and he's very much enjoying it. It's just robbed him of that feeling that he did feel on the wall. He does remember very briefly standing on the wall, looking out and thinking like there's something else out there. There is something out there. But that's just so far in the back of his mind now because he's got all this stuff in King's Landing and he's he's not going to be looking out to the darkness when he's got this big toy box to play with. Okay, moving on. For, for more good times in Aya 6, which is a, a, a chapter I'm sure we've all just flicked through the book and found whenever we need a cheering up because this is where Aya and the others, they're getting moved to Harrenhal and we just really see the lowest of the low for any group of people really in the torturing and just everything bad happens to these people in a really uh tough way to read a tough way to feel uh, i think if you read this chapter and don't come away with it not quite feeling yourself then you're probably not quite human it's very very difficult read and it really really cuts through and considering you know these are books where bad stuff happens gruesome very graphic stuff happens all the time and all that we've seen in nearly a book and a half and none of it matches to the sheer horror of Harrenhal and what these people go through in this chapter I'm not sure if anything else after this chapter does it really we're really in the in the pits here and unfortunately so is Aya now there's a key difference between book and show Gregor uh, on in this chapter on the show, he wouldn't have bothered to think about any of this for more than a second. He'd, he'd just start swinging. He's just like a mindless violence. In the books, he's actually a lot more calculating about his cruelty. He has picked apart what forms of mental torture are going to work best. There's the, the randomness of choosing combined with the strict regularity. People know they're going to be chosen, but they've got no idea who. How, how, the, how the hell do you sleep knowing what's coming in the morning? And then there's also the confirmation that even those who try and help they can still be chosen, and yet you still people still see people trying to help because it's better to try, I imagine, than just resign yourself completely to the, the fact that there's nothing you can do at all. And it's a real strict, planned cruelty that Gregor seems to very much enjoy. And I think it's it's very important that the tickler, he who actually enacts the physical pain and the misery, he Gregor's just the architect. The tickler is actually doing the job. It's important that he's just a normal guy that you'd miss in a crowd. He's not eight feet tall. He doesn't come from any great house. He, he's not a disgraced maester or even a famous torturer. He's just an everyman. And that's really showing Aya that evil can literally come from anywhere. 
I think the pointlessness of their questions shows that they aren't really interested in learning about the war. They're just torturing people because they've been told they can. They're just being, they're just these horrible teenagers who have been left alone. And so they're having this horrible form of a house party. Gregory isn't trying to uncover some intelligent net, intelligence network here. He's not trying to set up these lines of communication through the Rivlands. He's just ticking boxes before he can get on with the torture. Yeah, we did ask him. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did take their toenails off and smash their faces in and whatever else. And it's, again, bad reflection on Tywin for this strategy of sending Gregor to deal with the Brotherhood when he's he's actually just giving it more reason to exist. Gregor is just sparking the Brotherhood into life more and more here rather than dealing with it because he's too bloody stupid for that. So we can chalk up slavery and thraldom to the list of Tywin's heavily broken basic Westerosi laws. We speak a lot about Joffrey sowing his own destruction with his actions against the small folk of King's Landing, and Tywin is doing exactly that with the same with the same thing in the Riverlands. He is, again, breathing the Brotherhood into life. So for for all the opposition to Sansa that Arya has and how different they are, Arya learns very very quickly how to play the game here and how to hold her tongue. She adapts to Harrenhal and Weeze. She learns how incredibly important it is to be silent. And you wouldn't have thought that about Aya. Yeah, you know, back in Game of Thrones, where she talks to everyone and she's outspoken, she doesn't remember her manners. You wouldn't have thought that she could do this, but you know, this is life and death. There's no games here. Aya can. She knows how to survive. And I think as he's mentioned this briefly, but I did want to mention the the quote of King Aerys, "God grace him." The old man said too loudly. There's just that little hint that there are members of the small folk who still believe. And the Targaryens being a force for good, which is handy to know, considering Daenerys and also Young Griff are on their way. And um, it also just made me laugh at the semi-irony of not thinking Ares would be quite into all this torture and mutilation stuff. Finally, last note for this chapter, Aya, she quickly gets to learning like who was smart and who does this and the habits of everyone. And this is really her foundation for her coming tasks in the House of Black and White. Uh, her observation power is already getting a workout on all these lessons from Syria about really looking and it's going to serve her going forward. Okay, last chapter of the day, Daenerys 2. Not too many notes on this because you kind of, you kind of struggle with the Daenerys chapters in this in this book. But this is one where we get to Calf and uh, Danny she gets a, a wing of Zaru. Oh, I don't think I've ever actually had to say this out loud. Out loud. Zaro Zoon Daxos, that's what I'm going with. Um, uh, she gets a wing of his palace and she also hears about Robert Baratheon being dead. So, Aziz, he got to my note about Calf being the opposite of what Daenerys has experienced, so we don't need to talk about that. But again, Daenerys has to learn a new, new customs, new culture, and um, how to follow a path to victory as she did before. Except that now she's got a whole people following her on that same path. Before, she was just in amongst the Dothraki and she kind of had to work her personal way of, of how to use that to her best advantage. Now she's got to do that, but she's got, I don't know how many are left. Was it like 50, 100 people who depend on her and also these dragons? So she's, it's a, a lot more pressurised now, the situation. And this isn't the tough struggle, the tough physical struggle of the Dothraki sea and always being having to ride and eat the horse's heart and stuff like that. This is a new challenge of having to resist multiple offers for people who want to get closer to the dragons, really. And it's new and it's tempting. and It's coming thick and fast in the form of wealth, of gifts, comforts. 
even the promise of knowledge. She's suddenly got all these people picking at her saying, I can give you this, I can give you that. And it, it's tempting. Let's remember, uh, for someone who's just had to walk through a desert, it's very difficult to not just, yeah, please give me everything very quickly. For Danny, who's been a slave, who was a slave to Viserys, and then to Drogo, and uh, had, didn't have much agency in her life, she's suddenly got all the power. That can really, really go to your head. It really would affect any of us. But she does a pretty good job, really, considering considering she does a good job of keeping a level head. It's a good job Quaif is on hand to point this all out to uh, Daenerys and remind her that these gifts are rotten on the inside and that the only value that anyone's offering is already sitting on Danny's shoulders. They are the crux of all this. She's got to remember that. I'm assuming... It's the deep-rooted knowledge and respect of dragon riders from from ages gone past, combined with this idea of being a true civilization, the greatest civilization. I'm assuming those two th uh, ideas are what stops the Carfine from just stealing the dragons out from Daenerys straight away, which they kind of could do. Daenerys has really got Jorah, she's got the one or two blood riders left, and then not much else, so they, they could have done that, but... Uh, obviously not. Jorah, he's not a fan of being in Carth, and he's, he's pretty on point about the way the city truly smells. I'm wondering if all this lavishness and the all the wealth and the gems and whatever else, is that reminding him of Lanessa's preferences? Is he just very uncomfortable now around women who like this kind of thing and um, and men who have it to offer? Could well be. Could well be that it's uh, bringing up some stuff he doesn't want to think about. So we know the Warlocks, they've increased in power lately, and we can connect that to King's Landing because we know the Pyromancers have as well. The The wildfire is much more um, productive than usual because of this return of magic, which we can attribute to Daenerys. And finally, last note for this one today, Daenerys, she gets to have a little bath in the uh, the pool of the palace, and she thinks, oh, it'd be good if the Red Keep has one of these. Unfortunately, the Red Keep doesn't, as far as we know, but Winterfell certainly has a very cool uh, pool so maybe Daenerys if you ever end up going there that might be a, a good choice for you and that is that today that is six chapters of A Clash of Kings part five uh, I think it's 12 we're going for in Clash of Kings so we're pretty much halfway and uh, what fun we've had I hope you are all enjoying still again like I say please do get in touch love to hear anything from you, from you. it's very um what's the word Heart, heartening is that a word it makes me feel nice that's what I'm basically trying to say to you and we hear back from you much as it's, uh, it still blows my mind to see the counters go up and see everyone tuning in so does it when we hear from people and we would really like to both of us me and Lady Buckley and again thank you for some of you have sent some DMs on Twitter etc very much appreciated she is recovering we will be back with uh, our long delayed patron episode soon when she feels a bit better and we'll get her on normal episodes as well i'm sure so that was it everybody that was six chapters come back next week and thank you again for your continued support see you next week guys have a great day